Hello and welcome to the Clubhouse, Golf Monthly's weekly look at the various different events around the world in golf. Today we've got a fascinating interview with Callaway's Vice President of R&D, Dr. Alan Hucknall, and we'll also be explaining why the 2020 US Open is no longer an Open. Hello and welcome to the Clubhouse. My name is Tom Clark and as ever I am joined by Elliot Heath. How are you doing Elliot? Hi Tom. Yeah, good thanks. Good to speak to you and see your face for once. Normally we do this just on a call but today we are going face to face. So yeah, well, looking well. Face to face virtually. We're not actually in the same room. We're about 75 miles apart from each other. But I can see uh, with the light streaming in through your living room window, that it is a lovely, glorious, sunny day today, and quite hot actually. And it would be a great day to play some golf, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be. Would be uh, lovely, and it's allowed. Yeah, and that—that that was where I was going with it. Now people are obviously up and down the country of England and Wales at the moment, and tomorrow from tomorrow in Northern Ireland as well. We're actually getting out and getting a chance to play some golf. So. We're definitely going to cover uh, about all the things which have happened in the last week or so with people playing golf. And I think we'll start by finding out how you played on Friday, Elliot, where you had a battle royale with your father in the first round of golf after lockdown. How did it go? Did you play well? It went very well, yeah. I didn't play well. I think I said on the podcast I wanted to break 80. I think I shot 85, which was... 25 points uh, I lost to my dad who actually played better than he was playing pre-lockdown so seven weeks without touching a club helped him out uh, I was five down with six to play and I only lost on the 16th so yeah my dad started leaking oil on the back nine but uh, he managed to save it with actually quite a safe bogey on the 16th he had about 210 yards to the green and he decided to lay up when he had a shot so yeah. tactics I bet you yeah he got inside your head didn't he yeah I was making him try and hit a three wood but no instead he hit a seven iron and laid up on a par four <laughs> love it love it uh yeah so how how did you find playing uh golf again and with all the the new restrictions that have been put in place yeah it was great we didn't have like the cups raised up beyond the surface or anything so the ball was going in fine uh it was only going in like three quarters down because the cups were put in upside down uh, with our club as well the green keepers were furloughed so uh, the greens had to be worked on last week because they were declining at quite a substantial rate I think that might have happened around the country as well actually but aside from the greens the course was in fantastic condition there was a little bit of a party atmosphere on the practice screen and around the tee there are about three groups there uh, all spaced out quite safely and yeah, everyone's like, oh, is this your first round back? Yeah, play well, mate. And you can just see how excited everyone was. And uh, yeah, it was great. Most exercise I've done in about seven weeks as well. <laughs> yeah, and, and um, yeah, we've had so many stories similar to yours over the past week. Loads of positive stuff about golf. I think any, if you were having, going through a bad patch and not hitting it very well a couple of months ago, I think that would have been 
well out of your mind now. And I think people are just happy to be out and playing golf again. I mean, the weather has been ridiculously good at this time of year and people are now taking advantage of that. Uh, and for the for the most part, people seem to be um, taking all the new social distancing rules and all the things uh, that they've got to do in their stride. And actually, some people actually find it, I think, even for some things, a nicer experience, you know, uh, playing in two balls, getting round in under three hours, you know, and just enjoying, enjoying the game, not taking it too seriously. Yeah, pace of play was just incredible. No waiting on shots. Got round in about three hours, uh, obviously without having a beer before or after, you knew exactly when you'd be home for dinner, so which is good for people with partners and children and stuff. Uh, and I think, judging by from what I've read today, that some clubs may actually be trying to encourage more two-ball golf post-lockdown, so that's quite good. Um, I would say we had, well, in our bunkers, we've got quite a lot of sand, so it was very difficult to smooth it out after those shots. So I would say that's a negative, and... People might say, oh, bunkers are hazard or whatever. It should be bad. But I definitely think rakes will be returning after lockdown. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that. There's a few things that people have already been saying, even though we're only really a week into this now. Um, things about book getting your t- tea time booked online. Not, not all clubs were doing that. I think now a lot more will actually look into getting that sorted out because it's actually it's really simple and easy. And that's, yeah, instead of having to ring anybody up or whatever it is. So that's that's a positive. The pace of play, definitely. I do find it funny, Elliot. I said this to you earlier, that it is amazing. People go, oh, but well, you know what? If you play in a two ball, it's a lot quicker than if you play in a four ball. Well, no surprise there, is there? Um, I think the one thing is, though, we've, we have all played in two and three balls before. But there isn't going to be a four ball suddenly in the middle of the course, which may be holding up play. Um, so... Um, I think it's interesting. Maybe courses might have some days where they only have two ball play or something like that. I think some clubs are definitely going to be looking into that. Uh, and even the bunkers thing that you that you mentioned there, people have been saying a lot that suddenly the bunkers are now becoming more of a hazard, and you do you're not sure of the lie that you're going to get in them. And actually, maybe they prefer that as well. And also, I think. I think Joel, uh, Joel Tadman, who played actually a couple of rounds of golf with us recently, said actually without a bunker poking out the uh, sorry, about a rake poking out of the bunkers. Actually, the bunkers look a bit nicer. And actually, it frames the course a little bit nicer, just having actual bunkers than having bunkers with a, with a, sometimes an ugly rake poking out. So lots of things which already a week in we're looking at closely. And it'd be interesting to see if golf will change. Golf is obviously also one of those sports which are very lucky. They are, you know, all, all golfers now really have a chance to go out and play golf again, where a lot of other sportsmen still are waiting for their chance to go and play their sport. Obviously, I play a little cricket, and I'm still waiting for the chance to go out and play. Um, we can now play nets, but lots of issues around that still being uh, resolved at the moment. So um, hopefully a lot of people who maybe play golf a little bit are going to go out and find a course to play and, um, and, and really fall in love with the game that we all love. And there has been some more golf, not just amateur-wise, but also pro golf, uh, looked to be back last Sunday with the uh, tailor-made driving relief skins game where Rory McIlroy and Dustin Johnson won on a playoff hole against Ricky Fowler and Matthew Wolf, which is actually more as, as near as the pin. For, it was near as the pin for $1 million. So that was, you know, that's got to be the biggest near as the pin prize in history, hasn't it? Yeah, I found that quite sad, actually, watching with my girlfriend. Uh, I, was, I was like, one poor charity is going to lose out on a lot of money here. 
when it could have all just been split 50 50. I think the, char- what- the charities did all right for themselves. Yeah, they? of course. Two million dollars, didn't they, or whatever? It was. Uh, a lot, a lot of money raised by fans as well. That that kept going up and up during the uh, broadcast as well. Yeah, and it was good to see some golf. It was obviously very strange to see these great golfers carrying their own bags, uh, playing in front of completely. Uh, there's no crowds at all, with no atmosphere. It was a little bit odd, but it was also great to see some golf and great to see some actually watch some sport. We didn't know what was going to happen. And obviously, it didn't raise loads of money, which was the main the main part of it. But it's kind of, uh, I think they're, t- they're testing the water with these events. Uh, the PGA Tour looks like it's going to be back in just three weeks' time now. And the first four events, I think the PGA Tour have said, are going to be behind cl- closed doors, as it were, no, no fans. So it will be it's something that we're going to have to adjust to in the next, the next month or so. But for a TV fan, which I think most golf fans of course are um just seeing some pro golf live golf was 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 great i thought so um uh, it brings back a little bit of your sanity i mean the pj tour are are even saying that they might have fans at their events from the middle of july and if that happens then actually the Ryder cup's got a great chance of happening hasn't it yeah it looks like we might chat about the us open well we will i'm not sure if fans will be there um I think the PJ Tour are hopeful that there's a smaller number of fans at their events. Obviously, we won't get full crowds just yet. But back to the match, I found it quite dull and boring, actually. I'm, I'm really looking forward to the players playing some serious competitive golf. And yeah. uh, I thought there was some pretty dodgy banter at times as well. And why on earth they got Bill Murray on for 10 minutes? And then about half an hour later, Donald Trump came on for about 15 minutes. It was... Just, yeah, very, very random. It was a bit bizarre in parts, but it, these charity events always are a bit odd, aren't they? Um, and we've got another one coming up this weekend, or this Sunday, with Tiger Woods versus Phil Mickelson, the match part two. And they'll also be joined by two huge Goliaths of American sport in the form of Peyton Manning and Tom Brady, two of the best quarterbacks in the history of the NFL. And again, it's going to be one of those things where there will be dodgy banter, there will not be great atmospheres. We believe they're going to be driving golf carts as well. So hopefully, um, what's the what's the funniest thing that could happen? Tiger Woods drives Phil <laughs> Mickelson off the road into a ditch or something. That'd be quite funny, wouldn't it? As long as no one. Yeah. Woods, uh, is, um, Woods' driving skills have been questioned yeah. in the past, haven't they? Well, I don't know if I should yeah, say yeah. that. Well, he has got past history. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it's going to be one of those bit ones. But we're going to see Tiger versus Phil again. It's going to be that the match... The first part, which was what in 2018, that got huge TV audiences, and um, everyone wanted to see those two uh, going head to head with each other. So, even though that actually that day the standard of golf wasn't at its highest, I think we all agree with that. I think we're all still going to tune in if we can and um, and see what happens. And hopefully, they make loads of money out of it as well. So, um, yeah, we'll we'll see how that goes. But the, ch- the golf is coming back. You know, it feels a bit more. Like life's starting to maybe get back to being normal, even though we know that there's lots of pain still around the corner. Uh, you also mentioned the US Open, so the US Open is not going to be an open this year. So they've they've cancelled uh, regional and local qualifying for this now. So there was famously there's US Open qualifying at Walton Heath every year. I think that was supposed to be this coming Monday, and that won't won't happen this uh, this time round. Michael Campbell, of course, famously 
managed to qualify from the, for the US Open by getting through the qualifying of Walton Heath and then winning the US Open. So it's going to be a big shame and actually probably takes a little bit of gloss off the US Open, wouldn't you say? Definitely, yeah. It's, uh, it almost puts a little asterisk next to it. When we look back in history, um, the winner, obviously the winner, whoever wins it, will be the guy who played the best golf that week and will, will have played great golf that week. But you never know. Could there, the, I don't know, the world's 500th ranked player have had the week of his life? You look at Rockamedia back in 08. I don't know if he qualified or how he qualified, sorry. But he did everything in his power to win that US Open and he so nearly did. And that's the great thing about golf and major sports, or sorry, and major events, is that anyone on that given week could win. And we have that taken away from us this year, which is a shame. A shame for people who haven't qualified as well. So, yeah, definitely an asterisk. Yeah, it, it is funny because we're saying, oh, you know, oh, it's the, the guys who haven't qualified, stuff like that. But actually, it's probably going to mean that the field's going to be stronger than it usually would have been because actually yeah. you're going to have the best players in the world. I think it's going to go through world ranking things uh, and, and, and uh, people with exemptions on the, already on the tours. So actually, you're likely to get the people who have been the best golfers over a longer period of time, not just some guys who may have had a very good run in some qualifying events. Um, so it's fun, isn't it? Because we always sometimes say that the USPGA Championship has actually sometimes got the strongest field because the Masters is obviously a small field and it's got, you know, a, a few people who are there really just to make the numbers and because they're past champions. Uh, the Open and the US Open obviously have to go through this, this qualifying um, a process and there's lots of amateurs there and sometimes with club pros and stuff like that. So um, it could be interesting. As long as the US Open is the US Open and it's really tough, we'll enjoy it, I think, won't we? I hope they invite some amateurs in it still. Yeah, I'd hope so. I'd hope so. Um, you would think they would. I think there's some that have already qualified, I think, through winning some other events. So um, we'll, we'll wait and see how it, how it looks. But it, it seems, you know, that, that calendar which we were worried about whether that would actually happen with PJ Tour starting mid-June, we thought that was quite ambitious. It looks like actually those ambitions are going to be made because... Um, uh, they seem all set set for it, and we'll probably talk about that a little bit later on about the the plans that the PJ Tour have after we've heard from our guest audio for the day, and that's uh, someone who's got a lot of experience around golf gear. That's Callaway's Vice President of R and D, Dr. Alan Hucknell, who I've actually met, Elliot. Have you met him? No. Or did you meet him at a PGA show? Yeah, I did, and he's a he's a fascinating guy, and. What he doesn't know about golf clubs isn't probably worth knowing about. So who, who interviewed him? Was it Joel? Yeah, Joel Tabman, our equipment editor, a couple of weeks ago over on Zoom. Yeah, and they had a really good chat about lots of different things. Uh, so sit back and listen to Dr. Alan Hocknell. Right, so I'm joined by Callaway's Dr. Alan Hocknell. Alan, thank you for joining us on the Golf Monthly podcast. Yeah, glad to be here, Joel. Thank you. Um, I think... First of all, for the sake of the listeners who perhaps don't know who you are, can you kind of explain to them a little bit about your job and what you do for Callaway? Uh, yeah, I have, uh, I suppose, uh, one of uh, very few jobs like mine in the world. Um, I'm the head of uh, product development for Callaway Golf. So that means uh, I have responsibility for developing uh, all of Callaway's new clubs and balls. Um, and uh, for that, I lead uh, a team of about 120 people who are based here in Carlsbad, California, and uh, 
have a variety of skills um, that uh, all the kind of things that you might imagine it would take to uh, develop high performance golf equipment. And when you're going through that process of development, is it truly no expense spared, no idea off the table in the quest to making better performing product? Because I always see Callaway as a brand that really thinks outside the box in that regard. Yeah, I think that's uh, been in Callaway R&D's kind of DNA from the very beginning. So when Ely Callaway set up the company, uh, he invested in R&D uh, way back, uh, oh gosh, that was you know over 30 years ago now. And uh, so in the early days, he, he hired a guy called Richard Helmstetter, who was the head of R&D for quite a while. And he set about setting up a, a team of people who uh, came from a, a series of diverse backgrounds at that time a lot of aerospace engineers, automotive engineers. And uh, luckily enough, he was thinking broadly about hiring some uh, younger, keen uh, people too. And I, I was lucky to be one of those back in 1998. So, you know, my PhD was in uh, collisions, essentially. And, uh, you know, a bunch of other people uh, like me were hired. And uh, he, he really set the table for allowing us to explore uh, a lot of different things. He used to carry around a list of what he called tough questions that were all unanswered questions about golf club performance at the time. And we developed a lot of measurement systems and a lot of analytical capabilities that had never been uh, used in golf before to start to answer some of those tough questions. And as a result, uh, build products where we had more predictable uh, performance outcomes for all those things. So the Callaway Golf R&D of today uh, that I uh, lead is very much uh, a build out of some things that were set in motion um, culturally, at least at the company, uh, quite some time ago. Fascinating. And I uh, did not know you could do a PhD in collisions, but certainly <laughs> something that's relevant to golf. And that's for sure. Right. So, yeah, uh, let's let's bring it back to the present day then and talk about artificial intelligence. Um, we saw it used in epic flash drivers and now we've seen it used across the entire maverick range of woods and irons can you kind of explain to us what made you go down that route when it came to research and development and you know what was the light bulb moment when you realized you were really onto something yeah we we've been working on um building that uh simulation or analysis capability uh, uh for quite some time so you know for that we were using say we're t designing drivers um we can build models of the uh, driver in the computer that are very detailed and we can actually simulate the impact of the club and the ball. And uh, it's a technique known as finite element analysis. And we've been perfecting how to do that for golf for quite some time. Uh, but we were using it in a way where we would put our model of the, of the golf club in the computer, we would run the analysis, and then our design team would take a look at the results and they would make some judgment about those results modify the design a little bit, put it back in the computer, simulate the, the, the impacts again and, and see how much it improved. And we said, you know, maybe there's a better way of, of that process happening where we take the computer uh, and teach it how to learn how to design golf clubs instead of the human being part of that loop. Maybe if we could teach the computer how to, how to do the bit that the human was doing, it might actually come up with some answers that are different than the ones that we're thinking of. Because, um, you know, you'd seen a, a slight sameness start to appear in, say, driver face design. Ourselves and our competitors all had some kind of variable face thickness that was supposed to make the ball speed faster, 
across more of the face and increase the size of the sweet spot. But we all went to various similar engineering schools. So all of us humans were thinking about the problem in a similar way. And we said, in order to break out of that, how about if we try and teach the computer how it can learn how to design uh, these things, and then it might come up with a different solution. So that was our, that was our goal. Uh, and for that, we had to start to learn about artificial intelligence. And um, one thing you learn very quickly about AI is that there's no off-the-shelf solution to any one problem. You have to pretty much uh, make stuff yourself or uh, stitch various bits of things that are available out in the world together yourself in order to adapt it to your own problem. So that's what we did. We, we hired some more people. We took a, this in-house approach, how to take our core simulation capability of, of a golf club and a golf ball hitting, uh, being you know, one hitting the other, and, uh, and then add to it this AI uh, engine that allowed the computer to essentially do it for itself. Um, and that probably started about five or six years ago now. Uh, an epic, uh, uh, the Epic Driver, Epic Flash was the first one to really um, take advantage of all of that. So what are the main advantages of using artificial intelligence in terms of design and then also performance? Yeah, so you know, in drivers, for example, we're trying to develop as much ball speed as possible from as much of the face as possible without going over the limits uh, allowed by the USGA and the RNA. Um, and we had uh, done a fairly good job of that, but we wanted to see if there was something we were missing. And uh, it turns out that there was. And um, the computer came back with some face thickness pattern variations that we had never considered before. Um, a lot of the thickness patterns that we were looking at were generally thicker in the middle of the face and thinner at the edges, let's say, in various forms. But um, this one came up with a, a series of thick areas and thin areas, some of the thickest parts being right next to some of the thinnest part of, of the face and in a sort of ripple type fashion. Um, and we had not really thought about that at all, but it turned out that that enhanced our uh, ability to generate ball speed while staying within the, the rules. And that was something that was a bit of an aha moment when we, we saw this uh, simulation of something that looked very unfamiliar to us. We had to go build one just to prove to ourselves that, it, that the computer wasn't uh, optimizing mathematically incorrectly and we were up the wrong tree or something. Um, when we, and we built the first prototype and it did what the simulation suggested. Uh, there was a, a big buzz went around R&D that day saying, hey, wait a minute, we might be onto something here. It's, it's showing us something that we wouldn't have thought of for ourselves. And this thing has um, a measurable performance advantage. And it's not just tweaking sound or something like that. It's actually doing something with ball speed, which is obviously clearly very important for for everybody for distance and thing, things like that. So um, we were pretty excited uh, as soon as we saw those prototype results match the, the computer models. And in the case of Maverick, I understand artificial intelligence brought about some challenges as well in that if you used, when you used the old face material with the new design, it actually caused the face to kind of crack. So you had to choose a new material based on the new design yeah. that the computer told you. Yeah, that's right. You know, um, it's a good example of uh, how maybe our AI application is different from some others. Uh, you see 
AI applied to search engines online or uh, something like how Netflix would recommend a movie to you or things like that. Uh, those are all software applications where ours then turns into a real piece of hardware. And there aren't too many other examples of that around at the moment. Um, so uh, it actually makes our design job as engineers harder because the, um, the requirements now on the physical world are stretched more because of the AI design. And in this case, there was a lot more stress being put on the material in the face in order to deliver on the potential that the AI design was suggesting to us. So we had to go to find um, upgraded forms of titanium, upgraded ways of processing the titanium. Uh, there's a, a machine, I think there are only maybe two of them in the world that actually creates the face thickness pattern on the back of the face that's much more complicated than it was before. And then if you think, you know, we had to even go to brand new uh, laser-based methods of uh, measuring the thickness of the face because the face undulates in a in a very unusual pattern just in order to prove that the parts that we're making are what we designed we had to come up with a whole new measurement system so um, yeah it's the use of AI is sort of stretched us in multiple directions I would say and you can correct me if I'm wrong here Alan but I feel like the potential of artificial intelligence in golf club design we're only really scratching the, the surface i mean do you think it can become even more prevalent in golf equipment yeah you know i think um we've we've only been using it for what might seem to be a fairly brief uh, period in our total history so uh, you know the examples we've talked about here have been mostly about driver face design but we're trying to apply it in other categories also the the maverick irons have AI applied to them, for example, but the application of it to each different product category within golf is different. So um, we're learning about all of those. And to be honest, they're all at different stages of those learning curves because uh, it's not a cut and paste solution that once you know how to use AI to design driver faces, it doesn't mean that you know what to do to design iron faces or pieces of golf balls or anything like that. So we are still uh, learning how to apply these tools and it is different by category um, and we want to go on and start to apply those tools not just in the simulation world that we've been working on but also in the world where we use experimental data heavily and um, you know that might seem to be sort of a bit more familiar to other people they're they're, they're familiar with the terms big data and stuff like that uh, we we want to start using more of that on on players and in the way that we test product and um, it, you know there's a a whole lot of possibilities out there and uh, we're we're looking at which ones are most uh, effective for designing the, the the better product performance we want. And talking about the possibilities and what golf equipment could be like in say ten years time, what do you think those trends will be that we'll be seeing? you know, in five, 10 years from now? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting one. And, you know, one of the questions or well, ways of looking at that is to look backwards 10 years and say, well, what would we have known then about the way that we're operating now? Um, and I think there's one example of that. Um, so if you think back, to, I think it was 2006, Phil Mickelson won the Masters using two drivers. And uh, that was a strategy that we came up with about 
Phil as an individual and optimizing his performance around that one golf course for the way that he wanted to play the course and the way that he wanted to line up on each tee and, and to his strengths and weaknesses about uh, driving the golf ball. And he's not necessarily the best driver of the golf ball, but um, when we set one driver up to move one way in the air and another driver up to move the other way, he produced his best driving statistics of his career at that point, and he went on and won. And the reason I give that example is that you could argue that he was way ahead of his time in that he was, uh, if you want to generalize what he was doing, he was optimized, he was using the design of the club to optimize his performance as an individual. So he wasn't taking an off-the-shelf model, getting a quick fitting, and then going and playing. He was actually strategizing the way he would play around the course. He had data on that. It was only for one course, and he was one player. Um, but he was taking uh, the opportunity to optimize his performance because of the equipment setup. So fast forward to today, uh, we're doing much more of that using AI. The, the designs you can get in the three Maverick drivers that are available are the three Maverick sets of irons. That's not about offering choice. That's offering optimization possibilities to people when they go for a fitting and they, and they get a chance to uh, pick one of those three sets of irons or one of those th three drivers. Um, they're picking it based on some objective data, some realization that one of them is better for them than the other. So they're optimizing as an individual and we want to get to that level. And maybe Phil was there uh, back in 2006, not with all the AI tools and all things like that, but the general idea of taking you as an individual and optimizing your performance, uh, I think that's something that AI can contribute to and something that golfers everywhere will, will benefit from, especially as we see just so many people these days benefit from, from having some form of fitting before they actually buy their clubs. So I think that's one of the areas that AI is taking us in is that any one golfer can be way more uh, individually optimized than ever before. Yeah, so yeah, off the top of my head, I'm I'm thinking of an example where a golfer goes in for a custom fitting, and then the manufacturer builds a set of irons or a driver with a you know, a unique club face mapped to that player's specific head speed and strike location. I mean, is that the kind of thing that you're thinking of? You know, that's the kind of thing that is actually possible. Now, the execution of that might be a bit more of a challenge, um, but you know, technically that. That sort of stuff is possible, yes, yes. And you know, you'd think again, going back to my example of a tour player, they're the ones that we, they're a smaller audience that we can attend to with a little bit more um, of a fine tooth comb. So maybe that's where that sort of stuff starts, yeah. Fascinating. Um, and is there a particular product category where you think there is the biggest opportunity in terms of moving technology and performance forward? Ooh, it's that's hard to predict, but um, what I would probably say is in in relative terms, there's been less innovation in golf balls than there has in other forms of some other forms of golf equipment. So some of that is because you know it's hard to make golf balls. There's a lot of uh, manufacturing equipment investment that means that once you've invested in doing it a certain way, it's a big challenge to then invest in doing it a completely different way. So you end up with golf balls that uh, evolve versus have giant step functions in performance. So 
because of that, uh, and because nobody's really used, uh, to our knowledge, any of the AI kind of techniques in designing golf balls yet, I think that's one area where there might be something really interesting to look at. I'm not saying that from the point of view of knowing the answer secretly at the moment. I, I'll confess I don't. But that's an area that we're really interested in working in. Uh, obviously, you know, you hit the ball on every shot and the sort of most popular golf balls around at the moment have been those types of golf balls have been around for a fair fair while so it'd be nice to think that there's an opportunity to create some step change in golf ball performance uh, and again to maybe individualize golf ball performance a little bit more uh, using insights that these sorts of tools can can help us with and you talked about earlier about how you use artificial intelligence to create golf clubs under the rules of golf you know there are in the rna and the usga which i'd imagine can feel quite restrictive at times i mean what is the most frustrating constraint uh, that is put on you when it comes to the rules of golf and if they were to remove just one which one would make the biggest difference do you think oh gosh um which would make the biggest difference well the one that, that is most easily measured is the ball speed part of it so um, if we were allowed to uh, have unlimited COR or something like that, uh, we could definitely add speed to the to the driver, add speed to all shots actually, um, and that would make measurable changes in distance. So yes, that that one is is pretty noticeable. And the size uh, of the driver is 460 cc about right, or would you prefer to go a bit larger? Or that's a that's an interesting one because um, the benefit of going larger tends to be uh, seen as well. You get more moment of inertia, and therefore um, off center impacts are um, more like your center impact, and that's all true. But in the last few years, we have studied uh, the aerodynamics of driver heads quite a lot more, and there are penalties when you're trying to swing an increasingly large driver head at over 100 miles an hour. So, um, you know, there are trade-offs there that aren't always in the direction of uh, more is better in terms of volume. You know, we're trying to uh, optimize the whole thing. So it's one thing to be able to say, yeah, this head's more forgiving when it hits the ball, but if it arrives at the ball more slowly, uh, then that might not be a good trade, uh, you know, for the same effort applied by the golfer in the swing. So um, volume's interesting, but it's not necessarily one of our ones where we'd sort of say, oh yeah, if it was 500 cc's, things would be so much better. I, I'm not sure that that's actually true. Mm. And if there were no rules whatsoever, can you t tell me about <laughs> the driver that you think you could make? You know, what would it be made of? And how much longer do you think it would be than say the Maverick driver? Yeah, I mean, uh, when when we start to look at, sort of, well, if there's no rules, then how far do you take it? Um, I've seen videos online of guys with uh, little rocket motors attached to club heads and stuff like that. So, you know, that's non that's as non-conforming as a driver that's got a 0.84 COR. So, you know, once you're over the line, you're over the line, basically. Um, so why not? No holds barred. Um, it, so it's hard to answer that uh, question, but within realistic bounds, you know, if you had uh, no no rules on on the golf ball as well as no rules on on the driver head, I, I'm not sure where where it would go. We haven't really explored that, spent too much time and effort with that because I don't think it's something that is is realistic. And 
I'm sort of one of those people, I, I still want golf to look like golf, uh, even if we change the rules. So goodness, you know, could we add 10 yards? Yes. You know, could we add 20? Possibly. You know, that's a sort of statement of, uh, you know, across the board. But I'll go back to my point that for any one individual, there's probably more room that you could add because throughout anyone's bag, I'm going to guess that uh, even if you got fitted for your driver, the rest of your bag isn't fully optimized for you for the sort of shots that you want to hit for a combination of distance and control. Um, and the game requires all of that. So, you know, we, we think about scoring as much as hitting it far. And um, those two things sometimes are in conflict with one another as, as design objectives. So we like to think of ourselves as as designing equipment very holistically you know we, we think of the golfer first uh, and the troubles that they're having on the course and yes some of those relate to distance but a lot of them relate to straightness a lot of them relate to consistency um, and confidence and other things that are increasingly difficult to measure uh, beyond things like ball speed so uh, that's the fascination i think for me anyway in, in the role that i have is that it is a very complicated uh, sort of uh, thing that we're designing and we're designing for humans which makes it even more fascinating and complicated. I mean when you're designing new products are you seeing a, a shift away from distance and more towards forgiveness and consistency right now or is it still distance 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 that's what everyone wants? Yeah I think you know when you survey people they they like to tell you that they're interested in all of all of those things um, you know, and they and they talk about yeah, I want consistency and I want feel and I want uh, all of those good things. But then, if you said, well, you could have those, but you have to take away some distance, people would suddenly say, no, 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 I didn't mean that. <laughs> so it's always right up there. Um, and I think, you know, people when you ask them and they say distance, they mean different things. Some people will say, you know, outright distance with my driver. Some people mean. I just want to get the ball up in the air more consistently. And for them, that would mean distance. And that's true for a lot of people. For some people, they have a persistent uh, directional issue. So for them, distance would mean just getting in the fairway more often. Um, so uh, that, that one word can mean many different things to different people. And uh, it, some of our job is to tease out that. What does it mean for different types of golfers? And then offer designs that, that solve the problem different ways. And through through fitting and through a little bit of coaching plus fitting, they can find uh, the right solution for them. Some very good points there, uh, Alan. Uh, um, but now we've talked about the future. I want to throw it back to the past again, talking <laughs> about Callaway's rich heritage in innovation. And from the time that you've been working at Callaway, are there any particular clubs that really, really stand out to you as being particularly ahead of their time when they were launched? Oh, gosh. Well, before my time at Callaway, clearly uh, Great Big Bertha was a big step forward. You know, uh, that really put Callaway on the map. It was already becoming known, but that driver in particular was one that maybe few have, have been since quite as uh, prevalent on tour as it was with uh, the most average of amateur golfers. Um, there was something in that driver for almost everybody. And very few golf clubs have been able to say that since. Um, you know, in my time at Callaway, the, the Odyssey two ball putter uh, very much got close to that in terms of uh, tour usage as well as 
advantages for all types of golfers and, and large numbers of sales and uh, uh, to, to amateurs everywhere. And things that I suppose I've been involved in, I was involved in the ERC and ERC2 drivers when I first arrived at the company. And those were a big step forward in terms of, of distance, of course, and, and ball speed. So um, that was a big one for me as a young engineer at the time in my career, kind of um, getting excited about um, delivering something to the market that had never been done before. Um, and since then, we've, we've had a, a, a lot of innovation and, um, you know, it's attacked different parts of, of the game. Um, I talked about there being not much innovation in golf balls, but our Chrome Soft golf ball is one that has uh, bucked the trend in that it has relatively low compression, but can deliver uh, tour-like performance near the green uh, and still have low spin benefits on your long shots, which are good for, good for distance and straightness for average golfers as well. So we're pretty proud of, of that type of thing too. So there's a lot of things that have happened in the last you know, 10, 15 years that have really improved product performance uh, without any one of them having quite maybe the, the impact on the market that, that a great big Bertha driver would have had you know, 20, 20 years ago. Alan, it's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you about all things golf equipment. I really appreciate your time. Uh, just to end this chat, I just want you to tell me, if you can, what's your favourite yeah. ever Callaway club? Go. <laughs> favourite ever? Oh, gosh. Um, Put you on the spot, and I apologise for that. That really has. Uh, I, well, I, I guess my... my I guess a personal favorite would be because of what it meant for me was the, it was the ERC driver. Um, it was, as I said, early in my career here, uh, I was assigned the task of, of taking some of these very early computer simulation uh, ideas that we had and using those for the first time in driver design. Then I got to go to Australia to figure out how to actually make the, the face of this driver in a, in a forging method that we'd never used before. Uh, using, as they found out at the forge anyway, tolerances that were tighter than were being used on aerospace engines at the time. So we we felt like we were pretty cutting edge at that point. Uh, and, and for a young engineer, that was, that was just such a great kick uh, early in my career. So, you know, that uh, that has stuck with me. And, and I think I, I try to kind of uh, talk to my team about those sorts of experiences because we here at Callaway, we try to give our younger engineers as much opportunity as possible and responsibility for, for products early in their career, because I think it's just uh, exciting to be connected to the products and, the, and through the products to, to real golfers everywhere. Brilliant. Thank you again, Alan, for your time. And uh, we look forward to seeing what you and your team come up with next. Thanks very much, Joel. Yeah, we're looking forward to it too. <laughs> So there you go. Really interesting insight there from Callaway's Alan Hucknall. What was the most interesting thing that he said there for you, Elliot? Yeah, loads of interesting points there. Any golf nerd will uh, have absolutely loved that. Uh, a few interesting things I thought, talking about the supercomputer, how on the next design of the Maverick driver, he said that they had to change the material on the face. Otherwise, it would have broken due to the, the new supercomputer algorithm i thought that was fascinating and how they're looking to to use ai in more different ways and also what you said about the golf ball how of all parts of equipment perhaps the golf ball is the one that can still move further alan did acknowledge that he 
he loves golf as it is and you know he doesn't want it to look too different so yeah. it's yeah it's definitely perhaps worth us doing an article or doing more insight into just how far can these technology companies go before the amateur and pro game has to look a little bit different yeah yeah i think you're, you're right there it's um it's amazing how much insight and technology now goes into uh technology and equipment it's just incredible when you look back 10 20 years it's completely different so many different things so uh uh, yeah, really great, really great. So uh, what else has been happening in the world of golf? Well, first up, the RNA uh, announced that they were creating a COVID-19 support fund. So they're putting £7 million into the golf industry, which is obviously great that someone, uh, an organisation as big as the RNA are, are looking to really help out some of its um, key supporters. Around that, of course, it looks like that money is going to go to people like England Golf, uh, and, and the national bodies, um, and then they can give it out how they see fit. So I know uh, lots of other sports have had support from their their uh, key governing bodies, so I think it's great that Golf of Horse have now got that. But whilst people in England, Wales, and also Northern Ireland from tomorrow will be looking to play uh, golf whenever they can, Scotland has still got to wait a little bit longer. They've got to wait till probably to the end of the month. Uh, with Nicola Sturgeon uh, not annou- announcing that golf won't be uh, available to play till probably after May the 28th. That's going to be a big disappointment for a lot of people, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Nicola Sturgeon clearly is not a massive golf fan or does not play the game herself. Well, I don't, you know, what... I don't think that's, that's on the, the top of her agenda when she's looking at <laughs> no. relaxed lockdown rules is, is the golf industry, and, it, and neither should it be. Uh, but it is strange. You know, I think we're all find it a bit odd that the UK has been split somewhat uh, with everything that's going on and maybe some of these bit decisions are political, politically based and people trying to uh, maybe get angles and show that they can go alone or whatever but when you think about the people who live on the borders between England and Wales and England and Scotland you know you could literally be 200 yards away from the border and you'd having different rules to apply um, to comply with so it is a bit is a bit strange and um, it must be very frustrating for a lot of Scottish golfers. Yeah, especially when the UK has an all-party parliamentary group for golf who you would think would push for golf to be played at, you know, all over the place at the same time. It's very weird how it's been fragmented like this. And yeah, uh, hopefully Scottish clubs are not going to lose out too badly on these what three or so weeks without any revenue yeah and i think they just got to, we, i think our message to them is you know, stay patient um and actually learn from what's been happening over it at the english clubs and the welsh clubs and how that how well that they've been managing to get golf back up and running uh, for as many members as possible and actually hopefully they'll be able to uh, really hit the ground running and get some of those incredible golf courses which are obviously up in scotland back open and back open being and, and being used um, um sorry on the subject of scotland did you did you have a read of uh, the uk golf guys piece last week about the, the green fees at the top clubs oh what the difference in the price was that yeah i'm sure a lot of our listeners would have read that and if not it's definitely worth checking out the uk golf guy on twitter just how the prices had inflated since 2000 by like 300% or something at some clubs where the top clubs instead of charging 80 quid a round were now charging 280 quid a round because of the American tourist uh, and obviously the American tourist probably is going to come 
at all this season. So, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how those clubs look to recoup that revenue. Will they go to the local market, which is what the article's saying? I thought it was well, 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 well worth a read. Yeah, we're hoping actually this is a chance for people to get to pick up some good membership offers. Yeah, uh, There's a load that we've seen out there, and we're currently doing a post on the best offers that we've seen. Uh, but there's has been some fantastic chances for people to get involved with it. And I think people, you know, the, the golf clubs used to just be almost completely member memberships. And actually, when with memberships reducing, it does mean that you've got to recoup that, that money somewhere. So actually, I think that's one of the other things why green fees have increased so much, because golf courses are very expensive to run. So, um, it, yeah, it was an interesting article. And, um, yeah, some of those you wouldn't want to keep on getting multiple green fees for some of those courses, for sure. No. Uh, if you could afford it. Other good news well, some good news, some bad news for golf clubs. Club fitting has been definitely a, is now allowed to happen. Obviously, you've got to club be a club fitter and socially distance, which is maybe slightly tricky, but not impossible, especially if you've got the technology uh, to do it. However, pro shops must remain closed at the moment. So, what is the date today? Just so people, yeah. So it's the nineteenth of May. So at the moment, pro shops must remain closed. Driving ranges advice is still not completely conclusive. We got a, uh, an announcement from England Golf today we've been waiting for, uh, and it didn't, it wasn't 100% clear, was it? But then actually, I understand why it's not, because if you're uh, a driving range which actually is in some way enclosed and you have to go through maybe a shop to get to the driving range or something like that, then actually it's very tricky to open that up, especially with the problems with. Uh, COVID-19 being spread around inside. Um, I do think some golf courses, I think this is already happening, if you've got a completely open grass range, then I think people are already opening those already, as long as there's um, big gaps between people who are practising. So, um, yes, there's still some question marks around the game, and they're going to continue to to happen, aren't they? So, uh, But it's been a lot of... Um, lot of good things happening and long may that continue for the grassroots game uh one other thing yeah. i want to talk about was the pga tour have confirmed details of a restart which we've already mentioned but they have also uh come up with details of how they're going to restart and how they're going to do it get the players there safely so it looks like they're going to test all the players three times for each event and those tests are a questionnaire which is a funny one to be called as a test, a temperature test, and then a swab test. And I think they're going to try and do that for as many people who actually will be on the property, but especially all the golfers. Um, and once that happens, and they all kind of get locked down in an area. Uh, and then they move them around from tournament to tournament. They're going to charter some flights and try and keep everyone together so that they don't have to interact with anybody outside of their kind of like bubble. It's going to be odd, isn't it? Yeah, but... Personally, I think the PGA Tour are doing a great job. Obviously, there might be 700 to 1,000 people on site. So people always say, oh, it's not safe. It's, you know, a pipe dream. But it does sound like they're working with Trump, with the highest levels of government to make this as safe as possible. They're trying not to seem too self-righteous and use all these tests. They're trying to, you know, make sure that they're, they're not spilling over their capacity into everyday life. And, yeah, I... I think it's it's great. They're going to help golfers get income. They're going to help the local area. They're filling out hotels in these, like, keep the pod system or whatever they're calling it. So, uh, yeah, well done to the PGA Tour. I'm really looking forward to that starting 
looking forward to some high level golf with actual stuff on the line and yeah not long to wait now yeah and uh, and one thing you've definitely said is PJ Tour are putting a lot of money behind this they're paying for all the tests they're paying for all the all the um, kind of hotels and stuff like that I think they're paying they're keeping all the price funds the same they're obviously trying to charter these flights as well so they're throwing an awful lot of money at this to try and make sure that they uh, get the game going again and they can get their TV contracts fulfilled and things like that so um absolutely they're trying absolutely everything with it and we hope we really do hope that they manage to get this off the ground safely that's the thing we i think we all know that this is going to happen in mid-june we just hope that actually that runs smoothly and that um you know that it doesn't cause any issues uh, with with all these people gathering so but we'll wait to see we will wait to see and of course, mentioning the PJ Tour, we should of course mention the European Tour. The European Tour, at the moment, don't have anything in the calendar uh, officially until the British Masters. Is that right? Yeah, British Masters end of July. There are talks that that may come forward, and we'll see three or four UK-based events where players will be tested. And I think they'll be. Or was this on the PJ Tour? They'll be allowed on the practice ground whilst they've been tested. And then as soon as the results come back positive, um, negative, that's when they'll be able to play. Yeah, I think that's the PJ Tour. At the moment, I, th- I don't know the European Tour have completely announced the, all the full guidelines at the moment of how they're going to restart. No, uh, the European Tour have not said anything. Um, I emailed them and they, they didn't want to say anything about that. I'm sure there's an announcement coming fairly yeah. soon. Yeah, the exciting thing, as you mentioned there, is actually sounds like we could have, although it will be slightly frustrating because we're probably not going to be able to go and watch it, sounds like there might be kind of like a mini tour in England. So I think they're going to try and get players into the country, get them through the quarantine procedure, whatever that is at the moment, and then have them again kind of in these little bubbles, uh, starting at Close House, which is where the British Masters will happen, which looks, sounds like it's going to be the end of July. And then maybe having a four-week period where maybe they just stay in England, we're not sure yet, and maybe go to different venues around the country, which would be fantastic if they get that got and running properly, because again, that will help local economies. It will help uh, uh, local golf clubs wherever that, that happens, and it's going to put golf even more in the headlines in the, in the papers for hopefully all the right reasons as well. So, if that happens, I think it's a really cracking idea, uh, and again, hopefully, it's one that they can they can run safely. Yeah. Uh, I don't think caddies will be allowed from what we've heard as well. Um, who knows, will it be Thursday to Sunday, that kind of thing, or will it be just a two-round or three-round event? Uh, we'll wait to find out. But we do know that the USPGA Championship is in the second week of August, and will America still have quarantine measures in place by then? Who knows? So they'll be looking to get it over and done with by last week of July, I'd say. Yep, you're probably right there, you're probably right. Because all of the European Tour players will be in the field for the PGA Championship. Yeah, I mean, this could be some things that they try and get these four events done in a couple of weeks. Something like yeah. that. You, don't, you just don't know. Maybe a couple, two, couple of two-day or 54-hole events to spread out over maybe two weeks. It could be, could be a lot of golf happening. We're going to go and, from but, one extreme to the other, aren't we? Yeah, but unlike the PGA Tour, the prize funds will not be the same. It sounds like they're going to be drastically reduced, which is a shame. Yeah, but it, absolutely. It, it, that, that will happen, I think, on the European Tour. But the world ranking points, hopefully if that restarts and they'll be part of it. And I think 
they're obviously huge for people getting, you know, the sooner you can get up the rankings and into the top 100 and top 50, that can be life-changing. So uh, we'll wait to see, we'll wait to see. But exciting things ahead. So next week, we're going to be chatting about what happened in the match between Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson. Did they get absolutely outplayed by Tom Brady? Because he's so good on live TV, who knows? We're going to find out how Elliot played golf, because you're playing golf again on Friday, aren't you? Yeah, I'm playing uh, one of the, the world's best golf courses on Friday. Looking forward to that. Go, go on. Uh, Swinley Forest. Yeah, so that's great. That great fun. I haven't got a round of golf actually booked in yet. So um, I need to try and get that sorted out as well. So I don't think that's going to happen in the next week. But um, we'll wait and see. Uh, I'm looking forward to hearing what you shot on your first yeah. round back. Uh, my first... Uh, well, if you shot first... anything... Yeah, my first tee shot will be spectacular. I probably for all the wrong reasons, but never mind. Anyway, great chatting, Elliot. Yeah, uh, nice to speak to you, Tom. I'll chat to you next week. Will do. Keep the sun shining. And uh, everybody else out there, stay safe. Enjoy yourself. And uh, we'll speak next week.